Tonight's program is also part of a series here at the Getty Museum, which we call Getty Perspectives, that we inaugurated last fall. For Getty Perspectives, we invite distinctive and distinguished speakers to offer wide-ranging perspectives on the arts and visual culture, and we don't require that they be linked directly to any current exhibitions or artwork on display in the museum, but I think that these talks always have implications for what we're doing here at the Getty. In our first year, we had programs ranging from Bill Ivey and Lewis Hyde on cultural rights to Errol Morris and Ricky Jay on spirit photography. So it's been, and somewhere in this mix, we're going to try to fit Jeff Dyer. And I'm trying to figure out where we place him. And the first thing I did to do that was I looked on the, the back of some of his books to see what the publishers, what category they listed there next to the barcode. And so on Jeff and Venice's uh, Death in Varanasi, it says simply fiction. So that one was easy, although I'm not sure the book is so simply fiction. Um, on the ongoing moment, which we also have for sale out there, um, it was described as art criticism slash photography. And yoga for people who can't be bothered to do it <laughs> got travel slash humor. And I didn't have a copy of But Beautiful, a book about jazz or Paris trance to see which descriptors appeared on those, but they might have evoked their own distinctive labels. And I do have a copy of Out of Sheer Rage, wrestling with D.H. Lawrence, but the publisher didn't list a category no doubt because they couldn't figure out which one to use. However we decide to classify Jeff Dyer, I think there are two constants in his work. First, all of his work is steeped in the local culture, soaking in everyday life, landscape, and cuisine. When writing But Beautiful, for instance, he prepared mixtapes of the jazz artists he was writing about and wandered the streets of New York, listening to them. And I'm hoping at some point we'll get him to stay in Los Angeles long enough so that our city can infuse some future work of his. A second consistent feature of Dyer's writing is his interest in the visual arts, best captured in this passage from Out of Sheer Rage. Writers always envy artists, would trade places with them in a moment if they could. The painter's life seems less aesthetic, less monkish, less hunched. Instead of the austere mess of the desk, there is the chaos of the studio, dirty coffee cups, paint-smudged cassette decks, drawings of the artist's girlfriend, naked on the walls. It all starts at school, this association of writing with work and, and art with fun. The classroom is a site of boredom and order, the art room a place to play, to mess around, to make a mess. So I think that captures the main reason why I thought it would be a good idea to invite Jeff Dyer here. Please welcome Jeff Dyer. Oh, thank you for that very nice introduction, Peter, uh, and for inviting me here. It's an incredible honor to be speaking at, this, uh, at, at the Getty and in this wonderful auditorium. I feel I should be playing the piano or something like that. I think we're all, there's this very, very, well, there's this thing which is one of the most boring things, I think, that can happen. It's when somebody starts telling you about something that you already know more about than the person speaking. There's going to be an element of that tonight, but I'm going to talk about something that you know a great deal about in a slightly unusual way. 
And as I hope has been made clear, uh, this isn't going to be a talk about the, the Biennale and Burning Man, although we can, uh, I'll be happy to answer questions about those two things later. Um, it's important that you don't know what this talk is going to be about. <laughs> it's going to be a lecture in six parts. Each part is an hour long, so <laughs> I hope you haven't got any dinner plans. Part one. Next to my primary and junior schools in the Midwest town where I grew up, that's Cheltenham in Gloucestershire, by the way, was a large recreation park. During the term time, we played there at lunch times. During the holidays, we spent whole afternoons playing soccer. At one corner of the wreck was something we called the hump. The hump was a hump of compacted dirt with trees growing out of it. All that was left, presumably, of the land that had been cleared and flattened to form the recreation park. Either that, or unlikely, I guess, given the way that trees were growing out of it, it was a place where some of the detritus from this process was heaped up. The hump was the focal point of all games except football and cricket. It was the first place in my personal landscape that had special significance. It was the place you made for during all sorts of games. It was the fortress to be stormed, the beachhead to be established. All games back then were war games. It was more than what it was, more than what it was called. If we had taken it into our heads to take peyote or to set fire to one of our schoolmates, this is where we would have done it. <laughs> Part two. God, I love the way you're so ready to laugh. I'm, uh, um, the first area of wilderness to which I had independent access, I went there with my friends without my parents, was called Lecampton Hill, just outside of Cheltenham. A sign warned, beware of adders, emphasizing that you had left the safety of the town behind, and it imparted a hint of Eden to the untamed outdoors. If you walked here, you always came to the Devil's Chimney, a vertical promontory of sandstone rock. I'm not sure whether its origins are natural, a pillar of hard rock left behind when the softer surrounding rock was eroded, or man-made the lone residue of what had once been a quarry. Either way, at some point in its existence, it acquired this locally mythic name. My uncle Darrell and his brother Paul climbed the Devil's Chimney in their teens in 1958. There's a photograph of them, bare-chested, perched on the top of it like Hillary and Tenzing on the roof of the world. Climbing up must have been difficult but not nearly as difficult and dangerous as clambering down. The Devil's Chimney, the place my uncle had climbed. It was a landmark, a place of mysterious origins where something remarkable and risky had been achieved. Part three. Maybe because of some fluke of geomorphology, certain places in a landscape develop a special quality. A slight indentation becomes moist, a river runs through it. This becomes a fertility site 
devoted to the goddess, the Earth Mother. To mark the place, people arrange a few stones in the symbolic shape of a phallus or vagina so that its power is increased and enclosed or harnessed. Childless couples go there, mutter a few pleasantries, and that very night the wife conceives. News of this miracle spreads. People travel from afar, hoping for a similar, similar result, believing that coming here will bring their shaming sterility to an end. And it works, up to a point. Then it doesn't. And the explanation is obvious. During a period of drought, the river has dried up. Lacking any knowledge of meteorology or climate change, the people who live nearby, who have by now become dependent on the business that pilgrims bring, ask the priests what to do. They decide that the only way to move forward is to moisten up the earth with the blood of a few virgins or adolescent males. So they do this, and a previously nice place acquires an atrocious dimension, which far from cancelling out its sacred status, enhances it. Or maybe they enlarge the simple stone shrine and build something larger, along the lines of Angkor Wat or Salisbury Cathedral. Then, after an invasion or two, everyone forgets what it was for, and the place falls into disuse and ruin. But the accumulated effect of all these comings and goings lingers and seeps down into the foundations. And weirdly, by falling into ruin, its primal circuitry is revealed and laid bare. Even when there are just a few stones left and no one knows what went on here, the place retains what D.H. Lawrence in an essay on Taos Pueblo called a kind of nodality. Part four, thinking about places like the hump, the devil's chimney, or the spiral jetty, or for that matter of Kenro Izu's photographs of sacred sites like Angkor or Borobudur, I keep coming back to a work of art that I came across while I was looking unsuccessfully for another work of art. That other work of art was Gauguin's Where Do We Come From? What Are We? Where Are We Going? which lived in the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. I'd been wanting to see it for years, but when I got there, it was not at home. It was out on loan or had been removed for restoration. But compensation was immediately at hand in the form of a painting by an artist I'd never heard of. I know now in lectures, people really want a a lot of visual stimulation, but there's only one picture in this. in this lecture, and that's it. It's uh, Elihu Vedder's The Questioner of the Finks uh, from 1863. It shows a dark-skinned wanderer or traveler, as you can see, um, ear pressed against the head of the sphinx that emerges from the sea of sand in which it's been submerged for centuries. Apart from a few broken columns, nothing beside remains. In its way, it seems to me it's an early depiction of a post-apocalyptic world. Uh, The sky is black, but it doesn't seem like night. And one could easily imagine that it's not the head of the Sphinx poking above the sand, but the torch of the Statue of Liberty, Planet of the Apes style. Feder 
was in his 20s when he did this painting, and he'd not then been to Egypt, but he had seen illustrations of the Sphinx at Giza. And this painting seems emblematic of the experience that I'll be addressing in this lecture. What a certain place, a certain way of marking the landscape means, what it's trying to tell us, and what we go to it for. Part five. Years later, many years later, we came to a place that seemed like nothing much, a homesteader's cabin and a windmill in the middle of a vast nowhere. The sky was not just clear or blue. It was as if we'd ended up in a future where there was no ozone layer and no atmosphere, nothing to insulate Earth from cosmos. Outer space with daylight saving thrown in. Scrub extended into the distance, and in that distance were hills or mountains, but even the things that were near were distant. Were distant excuse me. The land was camouflage-coloured, the dust a dusty-looking reddish-brown. Near the cabin, but still quite distant, almost invisible, were sticks stuck randomly in the ground. Some in the far distance, as opposed to the near distance, but none in the very far distance where we could not have seen them even if they had been there. The air was thin and cold. The sun hot on one's face. When the wind subsided, as it did every few minutes, it was still and quiet and quite warm. As we walked towards the sticks, it became obvious that there were more of them than we'd realised, though it was difficult to say how many, because many were hard to see, and some were not seeable at all. And it's probably only in retrospect, once we had understood that their being invisible was part of their function, part of their being there, that we knew they were there. <clears throat> the sticks, it became evident, once we got close to them, were not sticks, but poles. Polished steel shining in the sun, three times my height, and sharply pointed as javelins. They were two inches in diameter and cold to the touch. If they had been tall, if they had been tall sticks stuck in the ground, they could have been stuck there hundreds of thousands of years ago. But because they were stainless steel poles, they were obviously of more recent provenance. Hundreds of years from now, they would still gleam like the promise of the future. We kept walking till we were surrounded by poles, but because these poles were a long way apart, it was not like feeling hemmed in the way you feel hemmed in by a forest. The most eye-catching objects were not the poles, but the cabin and the windmill. The cabin was low and squat, hugging the ground, determined to stay put in the face of whatever forces, meteorological or economic, might try to persuade it to budge. Our approach was different. We had not stayed put in a herd, but had moved off in different directions. Being here encouraged us to separate, but we all felt this urge, and so the urge to be separate was shared and communal. It was seeing the others realizing how far away they were that brought home how far apart the poles were and how far 
Into the distance they extended. Michael was coming towards me, slowly reducing the distance between us. We're a small number of people in a very large space, he said, walking to within talking distance. The poles make you reflect on the nature of the experience you're having. They make you come back to a single question. What difference do the poles make? Their effect is both slight and absolute. We were not facing each other. We were standing side by side, looking in the direction of the distance, and then we drifted apart again. <clears throat> the wind was strong enough to make the poles quiver, like they were shivering from the cold. At some point, everyone reconvened back at the cabin. I was the last man in and could see the other members of our expedition sitting on the wooden porch in wooden rockers and on wooden benches, getting drunk on champagne, watching me walk towards them. It was the kind of hut you see people living in in photographs of the 1930s by Walker Evans. What had seemed noble but squalid then seemed idyllic now, especially with the champagne and laughter. Anyone would have wanted to be here. As the sun began to drop towards the horizon, the poles sprouted shadows and the tips sparkled as if stars were perched on them. Perspective became an issue in that there was none. There were so many competing perspectives that they complicated each other and can cancelled each other out. The poles were still slender, but they'd now acquired bulk and solidity, which they didn't have before. They were far more visible now, and there were far more of them. It was obvious, as well, that they had been planted in rows. If you positioned yourself next to one and looked past it, you could see a dozen more, glowing, almost like a fence that could keep nothing out, that let everything through, everything being the sunlight and the wind. In each direction, there were poles arranged in some kind of grid. The sun was sinking fast and everything began changing accordingly. The silver poles glowed Goldly. There was a clear demarcation now between the area where there were poles and the area where there were no poles, even though the poles were arranged so sparsely and sparingly as to have made the distinction imperceptible at first. The sky grew bluer, was becoming dark, and the poles now were absolutely solid. Absence had given way to presence. We began to sense that we were in the midst of what may once have been considered a variety of religious experience. The sky blackened and we retreated indoors. We ate quesadillas and drank dark wine and looked at the flames of the pellet burning stove as if it were a television or the first ever fire. The vastness outside made the interior of the cabin seem the coziest place on earth, like an igloo, but made of wood and not even chilly. Later, we went outside again into the huge night. The poles were invisible, gone, but we knew they were there. The sky was nothing but a dome of stars. 
We'd all been in star-studded places before. We were no strangers to the firmament, but none of us had seen anything like this. The stars poured down all around to the horizon on every side. They came down to your ankles, even though they were millions of light years away. It was like being caught in a hailstorm of stars. Apart from what was going on in the sky, the only light was the cosy flicker of the telly stove from inside the cabin. The night was not just busy with starlight and shooting stars. The constellations were complicated by passenger jets, blinking planes, flashing satellites. It was like rush hour in the era of interplanetary travel. The sky was frantic and the night was as old and cold as starlight. I woke as the uncurtained window grew grayly light. Three of us went outside. It was colder than ever, as cold as Everest or the Antarctic on the best day of the year. The sun was just peering over the mountain tops. As at sundown, the tips of the poles began to blink and twinkle. Then, as the sun emerged into view, the poles stood dark and golden, even more sharply defined than they had been the evening before. We could see everything now in all its clarity. This was not just because of the light. It was also because we now knew what we were looking for. When we emerged again after breakfast, the poles were less prominent on the way to becoming almost invisible as they had been when we arrived. People like us came and observed versions of this sequence every day for six months of the year. A day was the measure of what went on here. The experience was affected by the weather and the seasons, but not by the larger movement of the planets and stars. Places like Stonehenge had been designed with the solstice in mind. They may even have been celestial calendars attempting to sync man's experience on Earth with the movement of the heavens. None of that was relevant here. The placement of poles referred to nothing other than itself. Thousands of years of study would confirm that there was no intended relation between the poles and the position of the sun or the transit of Venus or lunar eclipses. What was here was entirely man-made and appealed only to man. Unlike some chariot of the gods type places, it was not designed to be seen from the air, but to be experienced by people on the ground. We counted the poles, all 400 of them. Whatever else it might have been, the number was not random or accidental. 400 poles in straight lines, but the area they covered was not a square. Two sides had 16 poles and the other two had 25 and the exact measurements were a mile by a kilometre and six metres. The poles were 250 feet apart. Our final bit of measuring confirmed what we referred to thereafter as the Michael-Stephanie paradox. The poles are all different lengths, said Stephanie, who is tall, because they're all the same height, said Michael, who is short. He was right. They averaged about 20 feet, 
but the shortest was only 15 feet and the tallest more than 26 feet. The variations in length took account of the uneven surface of the land so that from tip to tip of every pole there was a level plane of invisible flatness. Given the precision of all the distances involved, we wondered if this place was a tribute to the god of measuring. <laughs> but was there such a deity, even in the richly stocked pantheon of Hinduism? So the question remained. Apart from suggesting that precise measurement could correct the wonkiness of the world, what was this place meant to do? What was its purpose? Where were we? Part six. Well, that last question is easily answered. We were, as you will all have guessed by now, near Quamado at Walter de Maria's lightning field. Uh, but that answer prompts another question. Why, why this subterfuge of inconceivable ignorance? Uh, and that question, in turn, suggests another famous Q&A. Uh, when he was asked about the consequences of the French Revolution, Chow and Lai responded, it's too soon to tell. And that's the answer that comes to mind, I think, when we're pondering the significance of the great land art projects of the 1960s and 1970s. With their megalomaniacal schemes and gargantuan undertakings, some like Terrell's Roden Crater in Arizona, begun in 1977, or Michael Heiser's City in Nevada, begun in 1972, still uncompleted. These artists were thinking big, but I think they were thinking big, not just in terms of size and space, but time. And everything about the lightning field suggests that it'll be there for years to come, possibly even when there are no people left to see it. <clears throat> now the people who built Stonehenge, the Druids or pagans, whoever they were, knew exactly what they were doing and why. Um, and de Maria knew exactly what he was doing. That famous document, the lightning field, some facts, notes, data, information, statistics, and statements is simultaneously an obsessively minute inventory and a visionary manifesto. The invisible is real. Their knowledge of the stats might be a little hazy, but most visitors who come to see De, De Maria's masterpiece have a sense of the art historical background and know roughly what they're in for. But what if we came to the lightning field years hence and had to try to work it out for ourselves with no art historical backup? What if we came to it like the questioner there? How long would it take an alien intelligence, or to put it another way, how intelligent, how, how human would an alien have to be to work out what was going on here? And I wonder, could that be the simple mark of genius when something is easier to conceive and create than it is to work out how it was done? 
Now, one thing people do tend to know about the lightning field, sorry, excuse me, one thing people tend not to know about the lightning field or are reluctant to accept, even even when they've been warned, is that it's not only naive, it's perhaps a little vulgar to expect lightning. Uh, We were there in May, too early in the year, but even during the peak season of storm activity, July to September, lightning strikes are the exception rather than the norm. De Maria apparently spent years searching for an appropriate spot, somewhere with a high incidence of lightning storms. He reckons that there are approximately 60 days per year when thunder and lightning activity can be witnessed from the lightning field. I don't know if any kind of record has been kept of the number of lightning storms that have actually converged on the field, but you would count yourself very lucky if you happened to witness what must surely be one of the greatest shows on earth. But De Maria is right. The light is every bit as important as the lightning. And calling it the lightning field was, of course, a sensational bit of marketing. Uh, Over the years, as I'm sure you'll, you'll be aware, voices have occasionally dissented from the consensually reverent view of what goes on here. The artist and the Dia Art Foundation control access to the lightning field and the way that it's appeared in published photographs. You can't just drop in, take a quick look around and drive off. You have to stay the night. And since the cabin only accommodates six, you have to book ages in advance. Now, taking aim at these authoritarian measures in a a pissy little essay, a critic called John Beardsley claimed that the build-up helped, and I quote, ensure that one will fully expect to see God at the lightning field. (laughs) Needless to say, he doesn't appear. No artwork could live up to this hype. Uh, Except it could, and it does. Even without the bonus of lightning, the experience of the lightning field transcends its exalted reputation. Of course, God does not appear. There's a lot of space, but even as a figure of speech, there's no room for God. The lightning field offers an intensity of experience that for a long time could be articulated only, or at least most conveniently, within the language of religion. Faced with huge experiences, we have a tendency to fall to our knees because it's a well-rehearsed and convenient expression of awe. Nothing about the lightning field prompts one to genuflect in this way. Acknowledging no power higher than itself, the lightning field takes the faith and vaulting promise of modernism into the wilderness as if that were its manifest destiny. Rigorously atheistic, its geometric neutrality opens up new possibilities of responsiveness. Part of the experience of coming here is the attempt to understand and articulate these responses. And contrary to Beardsley's griping, access is arranged in such a way as to maximize this experience. You leave your cars at Quamado and are taken up in a group at 2.30 in the afternoon. The drive takes half an hour, so you arrive at the least impressive time of the day. 
As we approached, an almost audible groan of disappointment swept through our party. We didn't know exactly what we were expecting, but we expected more. More what? Well, more something. And then, gradually, you get it. You realize that this is not a piece of art to be seen, but, crucially, an experience of space that unfolds over time. A narrative is at work. This is the reason why the lightning field is almost unphotographable. It's too spread out and it takes too long. Everyone sees the same picture, the one on the cover of Robert Hughes's American, Vision, American Visions of a lightning storm dancing round the poles. That is what might be called the lightning field moment. In actuality, lightning may be rare, but it's right that the lightning field should be represented in this way because every other attempt to reduce it to an image, a moment, sells it short. Within the agreed limits of your visit, you're taken up there and brought back, you can do whatever you like. Few other artworks or religious sites permit such freedom of behavior and response. You can drop acid. You can run around naked. You can drink a ton of beer and watch your girlfriend pole dance. <laughs> you can sit on the porch reading. You can chant. You can chat with your friends. You can listen to music on your iPod. Or you can just stand there with your hands in your pockets, shivering, wishing you'd brought gloves and a scarf. But then you have to leave. Not because the Sphinx has answered your questions, but simply because your time is up. Thank you very much. The, the, the question was, has there ever been a religious site where I, I have seen God? Well, I mean, the question's a bit of a red herring, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, uh, there's a, there's, it presupposes something. Um, I mean, in a sense, no, but when I went to, uh, to Varanasi for the first time, it seemed so obvious to me this was a really, really special place. And it seemed to me that actually, um, even if Richard Dawkins went to Varanasi, he would have to concede that this wasn't just any other place. And it seems to me, by virtue of the fact that this uh, particular belief system has been practiced there for uh, such a long time, that is to say Hinduism, I think some of that really has seeped into the, into the, um, uh, into the f fabric of the place. And it seems to me that not to acknowledge that re re weirdly would be, would be really quite irrational. I've been deeply moved by places. I've had all sorts of uh, shivery feelings, but no, the, 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 um, the God thing has, has never happened nor will it ever. I wanted to thank you for the description and out of sheer rage of trying to decide whether to bring your books <laughs> with you. I'm a painter and I assure you that we are just as neurotic. And that description had me grinding my teeth in torture because I know that feeling so well of being just 
clenched with indecision. And so thank you. I've never seen or read anything that describes that state of mind um, the way you did it. Oh, well, th uh, thank you very much. I'm glad to have been of help. My name is Doreen, and I volunteer with the school groups here. And one child uh, some months ago asked me, what is art? And I gave a pretty good quickie answer, but I wonder if what you would have said. Um, what, did, what did you say? I said, art is anything that you enjoy looking at. I can already see flaws all over the place with that, <laughs> but that's what I said. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be able to improve uh, improve on that in, a, in an off-the-cuff off way, but I'm, uh, I don't know, I did recently reread Randall Jarrell's pictures from an institution, There's a, which struck such a chord with me, some of the stuff I've seen recently. He says at one point, well, it's ugly, but is it art? <laughs> I've been so disappointed in um, movies and in literature when artists and the creative experience has been tried to portray, because mm. um, it usually is so far from it. It's, it's really, really rare, rare that it ever gets close to it. But in Out of Sheer Rage, I really felt that you had really tapped into uh, the creative experience. Um, I thought it was really wonderful in that regard. Great, well, thank you. Um, people here like Out of Sheer Rage, uh, I'm pleased to... Okay. But I have a question about uh, Jeff and Venice and death in Varanasi. Mm. Um, I've been to Varanasi, and I thought your description of it really captured that uniqueness of that place and the unusual kind of experience of just being there. Um, but in the Jeff and Venice part, I had an experience I've never had in a book before, which was, as an artist, I felt kind of like you had interloped onto my territory. Um, and it was so strange that I would feel so disturbed by that. Um, when you, it, going to the Venice Biennale, you were writing about people that I knew, um, uh. experiences that I had, and I was like, "Do doctors feel this way when you go to a, you know, read a, a medical novel?" There's another essay of mine actually, which uh, which is called "My Life as a Gate Crasher," um, because actually I've made. It, I mean, it doesn't quite apply with that book, but um, typically what I've what I've done for the last. 20 years, and it started with the jazz book, really, that I've turned up at an area of expertise, addressed some thing that has interested me, first of all, it was jazz, and then without really being qualified, with, certainly without being invited and without ha having any qualifications, I've just sort of barged in, and, um, and then had my say about whatever it was. And of course, when I was young and wrote the jazz book in that rather arrogant way, I sort of I entered, I like, kicked, kicked the door open and said, well, there's never been any good writing about jazz until now, that kind of thing. Um, and then, uh, I mean, then I, I've, of course I, I wrote a book about the First World War and then most recently would, be, would have been the photography book, really, like that. And, but I'd, I'd learnt my lesson by then. I, you don't just arrive and kick the door down. You compliment the, the, the people hosting the party that you've not been invited to. <laughs> Um, but what's happened, I think, is that uh, I've, uh, having turned up uninvited in these areas, there are two, there are two kind of distinct responses. There's the one, which is the, um, the rather that of the threatened expert. It's the, you know, God, what's he doing coming here pissing in our little pot? Uh, the other one is the much more open, embracing thing, saying, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, come on, you've come in, you know, have a drink, settle, come around. And what's happened actually is that after a while, I mean, 
then if you show that you're quite well behaved and you can contribute to some in some way, then you then you become uh, you know they they uh, they invite you back next time. Um, so it's rather different with the the, the Jeff in Venice uh, book, but certainly in the photography world, which I, I regard as my last significant act of gate crashing. Uh, uh, yeah, they, they've I've now become a sort of. Uh, um, a kind of guest, really. I've been in, invited in, and, and that's nice. And now, of course, I've, I've joined the ranks of the sort of expert, well, whereby now in the papers when some journalist, you know, there's that nice Philip de, Lorca de Corsia line where he says, photography is a foreign language that everyone thinks they can speak. <laughs> so now I think, oh, what's he doing writing about photography? They don't know anything about it, you know. So I've, I've closed ranks. Um, but uh, yeah, the um, as you know, the Venice Biennale is um, is uh, I don't I mean it's a it's a very it's a it's a it's a particular it's a particular and it's it's an it's an unchanging experience and uh, many people have commented in different ways uh, about the way that that's been portrayed. Um, the main thing that's come up is that uh, people kept saying it was, a, it was a satire on the art world, which rather surprised me, because I thought I was just describing my idea of a good time. <laughs> um, hey, thanks a lot for the talk. I just had a question about the name of this artist. You said it quickly, and I missed it. Yeah, I said it quickly because I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> so it's, I guess, Elihu, that's E-L-I-H-U, uh, Vedder. V-E-D-D-E-R. Um, I'd certainly never heard of him before I uh, came across this fantastic picture, and I haven't, haven't really learnt, learnt much about him. There are two paintings of this at the LA County Art Museum. Oh, are there? Yes. Great, One thank you. One as intriguing as this, the other is uh, still alive. Right, oh, great, thank you. How do you pronounce his name, then? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you.